Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit is rampant. Bullshit. Bullshit. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Welcome back, 1.3, I think this yes. would be, of Sounds uh, right. the Bullshit Filter. Now, uh, no one's asked me yet, and you haven't asked me, about who oh, the I'm voices sorry. are in the uh, intro. I know you suggested one of them, so you know that one. But the first one, do you know who the first one is? Bullshit is everywhere, bullshit is rampant. No, who is that? You don't know, and you didn't even think to ask. What does that say about you, Ray, really? I don't care what it says. I'm an American. I'm number one. <laughs> you can't judge me from your number three position. It doesn't work that way. Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Australia's way, way, way down below number three. Man. I was like, trying to be nice. I don't even know. I, don't I think trying- we, we don't even make it. I think we might. Maybe we make it into the G20, but... Uh, <laughs> That was, I was uh, trying to be nice. That's the late great George Carlin. Uh, oh yeah! If the kids out there don't know who George Carlin is, look him up. Do on yourself YouTube. a favor. Uh, yeah, the, 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 probably the greatest uh, stand-up comic there ever has yeah. been. Uh, even I put him above guys like Bill Hicks. Um, and uh, the second one is from the film Network, nineteen seventy-six film. Uh, mm-hmm. And the the actor who you can hear is uh, Peter Finch, who was an Aussie, uh, nice. or English born, but Australian actor. Um, that was his big role, and he actually died just after the film came out and won a posthumous oh. Academy Award for best. Get actor out of here! Wait, well, sure that that film was absolutely it made an impression on me a long time ago in the eighties. Loved it ever since. Yeah, it's a great film if yeah. you haven't seen that. Uh, it won four Academy Awards. Best Actor for Finch, Best Actress for Faye Dunaway. Yeah. Uh, and she even, you know, got the lines right, um, unlike the Academy Awards last week. Um, best Supporting Actress and Best Original Screenplay by Paddy Chayefsky. Uh, if people don't know him, again, you should <clears throat> check him out. He's... Uh, was one of the great uh, screenwriters in the US, died in 1981, won uh, three Academy Awards for Best Screenplay. Damn. Um, uh, for a film called Marty in 1955, The Hospital in 1971, which I haven't seen. I have no, seen Marty. Uh, Marty with um, good old Ernest Borgnine, who I used to love as a kid, Ernest Borgnine in any film. The mm-hmm. Hospital with George C. Scott. Oh, okay, never never even heard of that. Jesus, I've got to check that out. But anyway, yeah. Well, a great, great film network. Uh, do yourself a favour, check it out. Um, and yes, for Australians listening to this, I did just quote Molly Meldrum. Uh, so on the last uh, episode of the show, Ray, we, were ta- we started to talk about Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Um, I mentioned that uh, they uh, were a U.S. ally that supported Iraq in the Iraq-Afghan war. They were also sponsoring militants in Pakistan and Afghanistan who were fighting against the Soviet Union, uh, who had invaded Afghanistan, which in itself is a fascinating story, but we'll tackle that in our Cold War series, why the Soviet Union were in Afghanistan and, and how accurately that story maps to the American mythology. Um I'm guessing not close, not even yeah, close. Yeah, not even close. Okay, just not, checking. Not even yeah. close. It's sort of a repeat of, of what's been going on with uh, Russia and Crimea and Ukraine in the last five years. Uh, very similar. Yeah. It's, it's sort of a repeat of that. Anyway, um, which is which is a subject I'd like to do on this show, by the way, the Crimean uh, Absolutely. Thing. I think that's uh, a good subject for us to tackle. But let's talk about the history of Saudi Arabia. So we said in episode one that in order to understand what's going on in Syria, we need to understand the Sunni-Shia conflict and the history of that and the two major countries today that represent the Sunni-Shia conflict, Iran representing Shia and Saudi Arabia uh, representing the Sunni 
part of the uh, conflict, particularly as it plays out in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought do, it was. You, yeah. you wanna, do you want to say anything before we get into it, dude? Well, I, w- I was just going to give. A, I was just going to pull a James Michener here. Mention some uh, some back history um, as far as uh, Saudi Arabia goes. That area from the 10th to the 20th century, Mecca and Media. Medina, sorry, controlled by the Sharif of Mecca, whoever that was at the time. However, along a man's going to come along um, in charge of the Al Saad, the Saudi family. Of course, his name is Muhammad bin Saad, and he is going to join up with another Muhammad, Muhammad bin Wahhabi. If I'm saying that right, the founder of the Wahhabi movement, which is a strict form of the Sunni Islam. This is around 1744. They are going to join together their forces and they are going to kick ass, take name, uh, take names, no bubble gum, but they're going to spread throughout um, Saudi Arabia and gather a lot of territory under themselves. It's not going to last uh, forever, but, but they do join forces and they're able to expand their influence and control. Yeah. And we're going we're gonna to talk about their history. Um, and today, as I said, Saudi Arabia is a majority uh, Sunni country. The Shia are a minority there, roughly 10 to 15%, and they face pretty mm. severe discrimination in Saudi Arabia. They tend to live in secluded, remote areas away from the, the Sunni Muslims. Right. Um, but Saudi Arabia also has millions of uh, what's known as Salafi Wahhabism. You mentioned that uh, the founding of uh, the the Saud royal family uh, goes back to a deal they did with the founder of the Wahhabi movement. Um, the and I'm going to break this down, explaining what Salafi is, what Wahhabism is, and and how they're antagonistic mm-hmm. to Shia Islam. Now, Wahhabism is just one form of Salafi Islam, but all Salafi are fundamentalist. So okay. your Salafi uh, uh, Muslims are your fundamentalist Muslims, and there are different branches of that. Wahhabism is just one form of that. Now, ISIS or ISIL, Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab uh, are all Salafis. Whenever you hear them okay. talked about, they're all Salafis. Salafis are fundamentalist Sunni Muslims. Now, when you hear American politicians connect ISIS to Iran, right? you have to go, hold on a second, Iran is Shia, <laughs> ISIS are Salafi, which is Sunni. They hate yeah, each night, other. Night and day, baby. Yeah, they hate each other. So in future, when, when you hear these sort of... Well, they're just all... They're all Muslims, right? No. Right. It's, it, it, imagine... Uh, I don't know, Ireland in uh, the late 20th century or earlier even, with the Protestants and the Catholics going at it. It's like saying, well, they're all Christians. They're all... Why are they fighting? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, So, but the the Wahhabi in uh, Saudi Arabia, Depending on the sources you read, um, one source I read said there's about 5 million Wahhabis in the region uh, compared to 28.5 million Sunni and 89 million Shia. Mm. So they're they're a minority as well uh, within sort of the segmentation, but uh, they are the ones that are connected with the Saudi royal family, so they have... A shit ton of money, and they're very influential, (laughs) not just in the Persian Gulf region, but around the world. Right. Now, Salafism developed in the first half of the 18th century against sort of the background of European colonialism. It was a sort of this idea of a return to the traditions of the devout ancestors, the Salaf, um, as opposed to my personal religion, the Salami, which... (laughs) advocates a return to fermented air-dried meats. Uh, the more fat... I thought you meant the salami in your pants. I apologize. <laughs> I'm Chris- sorry. That's Chrissy's religion, is worshipping my salami. That's the role the women play in my religion of salami. The men, we worship the fermented air-dried meats. The more fat and chilly, or sometimes truffle, involved right. in it, the better... 
can't go wrong with a truffle salami. Um, but the women's role is to worship the salami of the man. Right. Uh, I'm writing a book on this, dude. It's complex. You're going to love it. It's going to be fantastic. Man's it's going to be tremendous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the religion of salami. Uh, <laughs> um, and like, you know, like most forms of fundamentalist religion we have today, it's a, it's sort of a, you know, throwback. It's, it's, it's a response against modernization, secular, right. secularism, science. And they're like, no, all this stuff, it's, it's too confusing. Oh, it's, yeah. oh, look, the good old days, black and white. You know, yeah, we liked it when the women just did what we told them to do and didn't argue back. And, you know, we didn't have to, I didn't have to worry about my latent homosexual urges by being surrounded <laughs> by openly, homosexual man it was much easier when you know we just did it uh secretly oh, in uh right. congressional bathrooms uh <laughs> <laughs> so it it was a pushback against modernization right yeah um and they support sharia law which i thought about going into in detail but i don't want to do that that's a fucking you know again i think it's something that's misunderstood by people in the west and but i didn't want to open up that can of worms Right. Um, but Salafi is made up of three main groups. You've got the, the largest group, the purists. Now, they tend to avoid politics and just focus on education and missionary work, spreading, mm-hmm. spreading what they believe is the, the right interpretation of Islam. The second largest group are the activists. They do get involved in politics but believe in a peaceful evolution towards a caliphate. Gotcha. Uh, they're kind of like the Mensheviks in Russia in the early part of the 20th century. Yeah, look, we believe in a social, socialist revolution, but we want a peaceful socialist yeah, step revolution. By step. Yeah. The activists uh, in Salafism are the same. Then, of course, you have the jihadists, who are a small minority of Salafi, but they advocate, like the, the Bolsheviks did in Russia, uh, a violent um, overthrow of current regimes and taking of the power. So I want people mm-hmm. to understand that within Sunni, the, the uh, Salafi are a minority. Inside of the Salafi, the jihadists are, mi- are a minority. So we don't think that, that they are all uh, advocates of j- jihad. In fact, right. you know, I had uh, a Muslim scholar come and speak to my guys at Sunday Assembly Brisbane uh, last year. Very, the most, one of the, if not the most respected Islamic scholar in Australia. And he said, absolutely, jihad is against the teachings of Muhammad and the Quran. Um, and he, he spoke out vehemently against jihad and terrorism as an Islamic scholar. But, you know, like all religion, it's murky enough that there are a million different variations. You take Christianity today, there's a million different oh, yeah. sects or denominations inside of denominations, inside of denominations, and they all disagree with each other, and they all think they're right. <laughs> uh, they're the one true uh, interpretation of the religion. Yes. So up until the 20th century, uh, Arabia was one of the poorest regions in the world, mostly desert. But as you say, it contained Mecca, where Muhammad was born, and Medina, Mm -hmm. where he was buried. And those, of course, are the two holiest sites in Islam. And it's the responsibility of all good uh, Muslims to visit Mecca and Medina do the the Hajj, the great journey, at least once in their lifetime, if they can afford to. So Arabia made money on religious tourism. By the way, do you know why it's called Mecca? Uh, No, why? Because it became so popular that someone said, you know what, this place has really become a Mecca for Muslims. (laughs) (laughs) Boom, boom, boom. Oh, dear me. Dad joke. Um... Now, the Ottomans, who we've talked about, uh, controlled Arabia for 400 years until they were defeated during World War I. Mm-hmm. But going back to 1902, this young tribal leader, Abdul Aziz, barely 20 at the time, mm. pulled an Alexander and <clears throat> captured from the Ottomans Riyadh, 
that was uh, the ancestral home of his family, the House of Saud, and he changed his name to Ibn Saud. So he was originally nice. Abdul Aziz. 20 years old, man. Uh, you know, not, not a bad effort. What were you doing when you yeah. were 20, Ray? Capturing 20. your ancestral home? I was celebrating. No, no, no. I was celebrating recently not being a virgin anymore. So he's oh. doing a lot better than I did. Oh, my God. I'm, well, A, I, 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 I'm, I want to congratulate you. And B, I just feel sorry for the goat that was involved. Uh, it was consensual. Yeah, Quit. I hope. I hope it. Anyway. I hope it got therapy after that. <laughs> and you know that doesn't really count, right? I've explained this to you what? before. Doesn't Damn it. really count. Oh my god, you're right. Over the anyway. next over the next thirty years, uh, Saud Ibn Saud allied himself with the British, and mm-hmm. eventually uh, was able to uh, overthrow four regions into a single state um, with the support, as I said, of the British, conquered these four regions. And in 1932, declared himself the king of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which he pretty much just invented, (laughs) as you do. You know what? This is now my kingdom. This is Arabia. I'm Saudi. Boom. Boom. Kingdom. Sat down. I kicked our ass. Exactly. Sat down. Sat down with these marketing people. Look, we need to come up with a name for the kingdom. What are we going to call it? And, and they had little pieces of paper with words on it. See, Saudi, Saudi Arabia kingdom. Hold on, I got it. It's a bit Came like order. when we came up with the name of for our show, "The Life of Caesar." What are we going? What, what are we going to call this show? What's it about? We want to talk about the life of Caesar. Yeah, we came up. What do we call it? Just so people know how we came up with the name for this show, like think, 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 which think, we only think. came up with like a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah, we were talking on Skype, and I said, "I don't know. I just want to talk about these stories that you know that don't really pass my bullshit filter." I was like, "Hold on, there's a good name. I wonder if that's available." The bullshit filter. <laughs> and so there it is. Yeah, the, the sensitive Southern person, marketing like, genius. I don't know. Genius. Don't, okay. Okay. And Sorry. it turns out, yes, you're a genius. I'm a genius. Yeah. 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 So um, the new king uh, had lots of wives and lots of kids, uh, and they became the royal family of this completely poor country. <laughs> right. Because, again, it's still in 1932, nothing going yeah. on in Saudi Arabia. Sand and sex. Yeah. Just boom. It's like that scene from uh, Life of Brian, I think. One day all this will be yours. (laughs) What? The curtains? Not the curtains, lad. The desert. But there's nothing out there. It doesn't matter. It's all yours. Yeah. Until in 1938. coming. Yeah, Yeah. 1938, Chevron, which then was known as Rockefeller's Standard Oil Company of California... Uh, discovered major oil reserves. Um, And then in 1945, the U.S., urgently needing shit tons of oil for World War II, (laughs) did a deal with King Ibn Saud. Our our buddy from the Cold War show, Frankie Roo, Frank Roo, (laughs) his celebrity name was, uh... Invited the king to meet him aboard the USS Quincy. Oh, that's nice. Which was docked in the Suez Canal. And uh, they put together a secret oil for security pact. Yeah, pretty straightforward. You give us what we need at a good price or let us have access to it. We make sure no one messes with you. And <clears throat> by the way, the oil. What, what do you say? What do you say? That's a perfect deal. Yeah. You give us cheap oil, and we will build the Duran military base and mm. train all of your armed forces. Damn. So that, uh, that's how that kicked off. The U.S.-Saudi alliance really kicked off uh, there, which much to the chagrin of the British at the time. And yeah. as our Cold War listeners will know, even though the British and the Americans are often portrayed as being friends during World War II, what was really happening 
is that the Americans, under the leadership of FDR, were quite quickly dismantling the British Empire. Uh, and Churchill was well aware of that, was not happy about it, but could do fuck all about it because right. Britain had, had run out of money, was running out of people, was running out of arm, uh, um, armory, armaments, weapons. Yeah. And the, and the bad part was um, from his wheelchair, FDR was able to reach up and grab that we're number one trophy from Churchill's fat pink fingers and pull it out of his well, hands and raise it over his head. From his wheelchair, he was actually the exact right height <laughs> to grab Churchill by the nuts and just squeeze them uh, until Churchill agreed to dismantle the British Empire. Oh, historical fact, people. And if you want to know why, go and listen to our Cold War series because we've gone yeah. into that in detail. In detail. Then in 1948, uh, Standard Oil of California discovered the world's largest oil field in Saudi Arabia, Gawar Field. Wow. Uh, which grew over the years and became a Ramco in uh, 1944. In 1973, the Saudis began buying into a Ramco uh, until by 1980, it was com- entirely owned by the Saudis, and mm. in 1988 changed its name to Saudi Aramco. And again, right. they got the same marketing geniuses back from uh, <laughs> 1932, <laughs> said, listen, we need a name. What's the, what's the name you got now? Aramco. <laughs> Boom, Saudi Aramco. <laughs> we're done. Drop the mic. We're our people. Pay That'll us. be Pay us. $50 million in the marketing <laughs> genius account. They probably had someone from the family, from the extended family, come up with that. Probably a seven-year-old. <laughs> Who knows? Now, Saudi Arabia is is an absolute monarchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's not, you know, no democracy, uh, no anything. Absolute monarchy, uh, effectively Damn. a hereditary dictatorship, as absolute monarchies tend to be, governed mm-hmm. along Islamic lines, fundamentalist. Islamic lines. Again, the Saudi royal family from the get-go, from day one, uh, has been very closely connected to this Wahhabi religious movement, which is ultra-conservative form of Salafism. And as a result of the the shit-tons of money that the Saudi royal family has, the (laughs) Wahhabi have spread around the world being financed ah. by Saudi oil profits. Nice. Now, Saudi Arabia today is the world's largest oil producer and exporter, controls the second largest oil reserves, uh, which comprise about one-fifth of the world's total uh, proven, anyway, petroleum reserves. It also has the sixth largest gas reserves. Damn. And something I know you want to talk about because you posted about it on Facebook recently. It is Didn't has Saudi Arabia has the fourth highest military expenditure in the world, and is the world's second largest arms importer. And who do they buy most of their arms from? Ray, U.S. fucking a. Woo! But yeah. I mean, yeah, so go out right now, because that's oh, not going to change. Go out and buy some stock see? in some of this company. Make some money. I'm just trying to help you people. Go make some money, because it's not going to change. So um, <clears throat> since Obama took office in 2009, the latest numbers that I have is mm-hmm. that the U.S. has sold $110 billion in weapons to Saudi Arabia. Since Damn. Obama took office, that is. He, and I he, guess their job is to keep uh, Iran in check because I guess they stare at each other and they're both trying to dominate the area. So yeah. they're using those weapons to protect themselves from a potential attack? Yeah. Uh, that's sure. that's one way of looking at it. Um, <laughs> keep, keep in mind here, as I said, the Wahhabi, uh, 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 you know, connected with the Saudi royal family, this ultra-conservative form of Salafism, and the U.S. Mm-hmm. is just selling them billions and billions and billions of weapons every year. Um, now, Saudi Arabia is is widely accused of having one of the worst human rights records in the world. 
the, the, the women have an extremely disadvantaged position. There's capital punishment for homosexuality, uh, mm-hmm. religious discrimination, obviously, as I mentioned before, uh, lack of religious freedom. They have religious police. It's one of very few countries in the world that have still not signed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. They uh, like to behead and crucify people. Um, Hundreds of people a year are beheaded still by the government. Um, I'm not just talking about fun times on a weekend like the KKK (laughs) uh, crucifying people. I'm talking about the actual government officially beheading people. Right. Um, there was a young guy, uh, Ali Muhammad Bakir al-Nimir, who was arrested in 2012 when he was 17 years old for taking part in anti-government protests during the Arab mm-hmm. Spring. Uh, he was charged and found guilty of encouraging pro-democracy protests using a BlackBerry. Oh, God. Um, I think in 2012, just using a BlackBerry should be a crime in and of itself in most parts of the world. But I'm not sure that uh, everyone who is found guilty of that should be publicly beheaded and crucified as Ali Al-Namir was in 2014. Jesus. I was going to make a joke saying, yes, yes, all that's true, but their checks never bounce. But now I don't feel like I can say that because you just mentioned the beheading. So, but their checks never bounce. And, and these what? are our allies. Oh, when you're selling them weapons, you're talking about yeah, yeah, yeah. The checks never bounce. Um, in 2013, a Saudi blogger, Rafe Badawi, was convicted mm-hmm. for defending atheism and sentenced to ten years in prison, a thousand lashes, and a fine. Damn. I mean, really. The fine? Do you really need that part? I think the <laughs> first the two would pretty much cover it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're already rich. Let's just beat the shit out of you and lock you away for 10 years. Imagine what would happen to me over there, right? <laughs> 20 um, seconds. Yeah, you would now, not even leave the airport and then you'd be in jail. Even members of the royal family aren't uh, able to get away immune? with much. Yeah, immune. This is what I'm looking for. Four... Of King Abdullah's fifteen daughters have lived uh, lived uh-uh. under house arrest for thirteen years after they spoke out publicly against the kingdom's policies towards women. Yes, but in his defense, their houses are probably mansions, and it's not the worst thing in the world that can happen to you. <laughs> well, and as, true. And as a father of four daughters, I think house arrest is actually the way to go. Mandatory for young girls. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, when, however, when King Abdullah passed away a couple of years ago, President Obama praised his, and this is the quote, enduring contribution to the search for peace. And Secretary of State John Kerry called him a man of wisdom and vision. Yes, okay, he threw some of his daughters in jail for saying there should be more rights for women. Yeah, he had a guy publicly uh, beheaded and crucified for using a BlackBerry. He had this mm-hmm. guy sentenced to 10 years prison for atheism, but he is a man of wisdom and vision, according to John Kerry. you you got to do the best you can with your allies, because if it's a zero-sum game. If they're not your allies, they're going to be somebody else's allies, and they're a rich, powerful country. I don't know, I'm just playing devil's ad. I'm playing American advocate here for a second. But yeah, right. America doesn't like countries that are run by brutal, brutal theocratic dictators with a terrible human rights records. You're constantly right. telling me how you need to intervene in their countries to uh, take them down. You need to spend hundreds of billions of dollars fighting wars in places like Iraq to take down Saddam Hussein, Ray. Uh, right. to, you, know, you need to have economic sanctions against Cuba, for 60 years to take down Fidel Castro, uh, I don't understand, Ray. Why haven't you invaded Saudi Arabia? Why don't you have economic sanctions against Saudi Arabia? Um, again, their checks don't bounce. Let a couple of those bounce and we'll be all over their asses. But on a more serious note, my brother, who's in the United States Army, he's a ranger. He is now back in Afghanistan for the third time. He has been told to go over there to assess 
uh, a certain situation that I'm not allowed to know of. And then the, the entire, uh, uh, well, again, group of uh, men that work with him uh, are going to go back over there and he's going to be there for 16 months. So I don't, uh, as an American, I am so fucking tired of us getting involved, losing our people, fucking up their lives, and in the process, spending a whole bunch of money that could be spent over here on our people. Just leave the fucking place alone. I know we broke it and we have to pay for it. Leave it the fuck alone. Get the fuck out of there and just let these people get on with their lives and we'll get on our, with our lives and quit all this fucking king making and empire building and destroying. It's just a it's just a horrible, vicious cycle that causes nothing but pain and trouble. And But when you wrap it up in patriotism, supposedly it's okay and it's supposed to make everything okay. Just leave those people the fuck alone and bring all of our guys and ladies home. Just end it already. Well, it didn't really answer my question about why you haven't invaded Saudi Arabia, though. Because they're our fucking partner, and we they give us a lot of money for weapons. So you turn fuck a, what they so you turn fuck a, what they do. Yeah, yes, so you turn a blind eye to everything to, else. Yeah. Yes, whatever they do to their own people, they're theoretically not doing it to our people, except for when they sponsor terrorism. Whatever, I don't know about that, but yeah, America's I don't know. And then it's our policy. The, the thing it's that amuses policy. me is all of the outrage that you see in the U.S. media and on Facebook. When ISIS are beheading people. Oh my God, they're savages. They're beheading people. We need to stop them. I go, well, hold on. Saudi Arabia beheaded 300 people last week. What? Yeah, Uh, yes, but, you know, they're our friends. So, (laughs) but ISIS, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's all, it's fucked up. It's a clusterfuck of, of, incredible magnitude and who knows even begin how to, how to begin to unravel and fix that situation, that, that area. Well, the thing, the thing that I love when, when I hear people say, well, we broke it. We have to stay there until we fix it. I say, no, no, no. Here's what you do to fix it. You get, you get the fuck out. And then you say, what if we spent on the war $700 billion? Right. We're going to give you $700 billion now in reparations to fix it. Mm -hmm. That's how you fix it. You, You say, listen, we're going to get out of your way. And give you the equivalent amount of money that we spent breaking it as reparations. That's it. It's easy. Done. Here's seven hundred yeah. billion dollars. Go fix it. I'm sure they'll yeah, figure you, it out. You live your life, whatever. Let us just buy oil from you. You 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 get on with living your lives and your culture and your society and your government. We just need to buy some oil because everything we have over here runs on it until we can figure out something else. You live your way, we live our way, and we'll let God decide. Yeah, right. He's done such a good job so far, God. Top job, job. Top, top job, job. Top job, God. That's hard to say. Top job, God. Say that ten times Omnipent, fast. All an omni, whatever. I can't think of it. Top right job, now. But God. Anyway, top, he, he, I, no, just try and say that ten times fast. Do it. Top job, God. Top job, God. I can't. Fast, I, I said. Can't. Yeah. Fucking I'm a southerner that was yeah. fast. Hey, fuck you and fuck your cousin. <laughs> That's your thing. Um, uh, Where were we? Where were we? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So, of course, getting back to Saudi Arabia, uh, right. 15 out of the 19 9-11 hijackers, or mm-hmm. as I call them, alleged 9-11 hijackers, because honestly, I haven't seen any evidence to confirm that these guys were actually the hijackers, but 15 out of the 19 were from Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And I love I love the US's logic. Oh my God, Saudi Arabian terrorists, you know, crashed into our buildings. Let's go invade Afghanistan. <laughs> uh, what? The, the, hey, what? Yeah. What? <laughs> Hey, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, and then after Afghanistan, now we're going to go invade Iraq. But wait, but 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 they were Saudis. Yes, but they were uh, funded by Osama bin Laden. I know he's another Saudi. Oh, but but he's hiding out in Afghanistan. Really? Yeah. T- turns out he was in Pakistan, next door to the fucking military com the, 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 the headquarters of the Pakistani military. But yeah. Just but no, no, no. We don't go and invade Saudi Arabia. We go and invade two countries that had fucking nothing to do with it. Anyway. Well, we can't invade Saudi Arabia because they have a very powerful military. How do we know? That, we how do we know? Yeah, yeah, that's right. 
Yeah, that is the top of the line stuff. Yeah. When was the last time, Ray, that the US invaded a country that could actually fight back? Well, I would. I was going to say Germany, but uh, Vietnam did a pretty good job of kicking our ass. Uh, yeah, but as far as a comparable military, I'd have to say, uh, I'd have to mm, Germany. Yeah, and really, you just let the Russians do most of the work there as well. Yeah, so. I was going to leave that part out, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Has yeah. there ever? Has there ever? been a time in u.s history where the u.s has invaded a country of comparable military strength mm. uh maybe world war one uh yeah. Yeah. would be the best answer i could come up with i reckon it's been a hundred years yeah. since the u.s but we, we prefer it that way if you don't mind yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah we prefer we that to change yeah 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 no, I, i'm just gonna i'm just gonna start calling america biff from now on. <laughs> Biff from... Uh, back to the future? Back to the future. A, your president basically is Biff. He um, is. Well, you know that the writers of Back to the Future actually did base Biff on Donald Trump. No. Yeah, they come out and, and acknowledge that. Uh, so, yeah. Oh so, basically, the US is run by Biff. And basically, as a country, you're pretty much Biff. You're just walking around... <laughs> You know, grabbing George McFly and uh, you know tapping him yeah. on the head with his own hands. Shit out of him. Yeah, exactly. Quit hitting yourself. Quit hitting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Quit hitting yourself. Yeah. The, the, Afghanistan. Quit hitting not, yourself. <laughs> this is not America's uh, proudest time right now. This is certainly not our best time. I'm just when ha- when was your best? Next four years. When was your proudest I don't best know. time? Probably it- the Gipper. The first day of the Gipper's oh, presidency when he got those day. when he got those hostages out. Yeah, when he got them out, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, now, of course, getting back to the 9-11 hijackers, we, we now yes. know that there has been significant evidence that the US government has kept hidden from the public <clears throat> that the Saudi royal family were heavily involved in financing and supporting the 9-11 hijackers. Um, <clears throat> US Secretary of State Hillary uh, Clinton, I think this is, not sure whatever happened yeah. to her, um, yeah. wrote in a memo in, uh, or a cable, diplomatic cable, in December 2009 that was later leaked by my brother, Julian Assange, <laughs> that uh, entities in Saudi Arabia, this is her quote, were the most significant source of funding to Sunni terrorist groups worldwide. Mm. What what is their end game attacking the United States? I mean, are they are they lucky that we just didn't completely freak the fuck out and bomb Saudi Arabia? I mean, I'm just trying to figure out. Hope, hope they were hoping not to get caught. What you know what I'm saying? <sighs> Oh, dude, that's a fucking minefield. Yeah, let's yeah. let's do a show on yeah. that or ten. But yeah, let's not go into that. Yeah, we'll use fake names <clears throat> when we do it. I'll be Biff. <laughs> <laughs> I might just start calling you Biff from now on. Uh, you wish you had Biff's head of hair. That's that's why I thing. do. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. Now, uh, back to Saudi Arabia. Uh, The Mm -hmm. kingdom, as I said, is the uh, largest oil producer in the world Um, and the largest producer in OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries that controls about 40% of the world's oil. Um, Now, up until recently, the United States, of course, was also the world's top oil importer. Uh, they're not anymore because you've started to figure out how to produce more oil and gas mm-hmm. uh, in your own region. Are we, but is it for, the fracking? Uh, yeah, yeah, the fracking is part of it. But uh, okay. that's for the gas. But, you know, for uh, and, uh, gas, oil, gas, fracking, right? I think fracking is gas. Natural yeah, gas. Yeah, 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 Natural yeah. gas, something, I don't know. Um, I don't really understand it. I have read about it uh, a couple of times, but it's yeah. escaping me. Um, but, uh, you know, the, 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 for, for the last 70 years or whatever, the U.S. has been very closely involved with Saudi Arabia to make sure that they get their oil and at a reasonable price. I mean, you had the oil crisis in the 70s and all that kind of stuff. But generally speaking, U.S. and Saudi Arabia are very, very tight when it comes to 
America buying oil, Saudi Arabia buying weapons so they can, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, 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 maintain their power. I mean, it's 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 right. expensive to be a royal family to to maintain a dictatorship in any country. You've you've got to have weapons to keep the people oppressed. People don't just right. stay oppressed by themselves. <laughs> I mean, I wish they would, but they won't. You know, <laughs> they, it. right? Yeah, yeah. costs yeah. a lot of money. Um, you do your part. Of course, Saudi Arabia also one of the major investors in U.S. government bonds, and uh, since the global financial crisis, in particular, pretty much buying up U.S. infrastructure left, right, and center. Yeah. Um, through their you know various royal family uh, funds, they're buying up a lot of American roads and and hospitals and all sorts mm-hmm. of core infrastructure in the U.S. As your state and local governments have been trying to sell shit off in order to get some hard cash, the right. Saudis have been coming in and buying up a lot of U.S. infrastructure as well. So, so to sum up, they attack us, they buy our debt, and then they buy our physical property. Uh, are we winning? Are we winning this thing? It doesn't sound uh, like America's winning. So much winning! You're gonna get tired of winning. <laughs> so much winning. <laughs> Shit. Yeah. Again, <laughs> you know Trump's Muslim ban, his travel ban. You gotta love it. Yeah, which country did the night the the, the 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 single greatest terrorist attack on U.S. soil in your history? Nine eleven. Where did the attackers yeah. come from? Saudi Arabia. Which country? Which Muslim country is not on the travel ban no, list? Those... Saudi Arabia. Because some fucking stellar, stellar logic there. <laughs> stellar. And his excuse was, we were just using the list that Obama had come up with. We yeah. didn't come up with this list. Fuck. Never mind. Okay. That's true. for another show. Yeah, it's true, though. Um, the, uh, Saudi Arabia has also acted as a proxy for the U.S., uh, like Israel does. Uh, they, they've been involved in funneling arms and funding to people like the Nicaraguan Contras during mm-hmm. Reagan's Iran-Contra scandal, which, again, we, fuck, we don't have time to go into. but uh, <laughs> We should cover that one day. <laughs> Some yeah. of to say it was slightly illegal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway. Um, so what does all this have to do with Syria? That's a good question. So let's start on the history of Syria. Mm-hmm. Syria was uh, pretty much owned like all the other uh, territories there by various people. Do you want to start at uh, post-World War II or where do you want to start at? Um, no, I think we'll go back a little bit. Um, let's talk about the end of World War One, or around about okay. then. I'm, I'm, go I'm ahead. Letting you, no, you kick it off. No, you kick it off, and I'll talk about the end of World War Two. <laughs> okay. So the modern uh, Syrian state was established after World War One. Of course, as we've talked about, the Ottomans lost control of the region. Mm-hmm. And it started off as a French mandate. Now, what does a French mandate really mean? Well, after World War One, the Paris Peace Conference, blah, 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 the Middle East was basically split up between the victors in World War One. They're like, look, you take this area and you take that area and <laughs> you, you take, take this area. Just yes. every, you, you get a piece of the Middle East. You get a piece of the Middle East. You get a piece of the Middle East. And, and you know, it's like, hooray, we, we overthrew your oppressors, people in the Middle East. Uh, but we're, right. now, we're now your new oppressors. So uh, <laughs> uh, uh, mandate. I love the word mandate. It's such an Orwellian it's like the people term. want it. Yeah. yeah. Well, mandate. No, you've got a mandate. What's your mandate? Uh, to run the place. <laughs> Uh, to take yours. its resources. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. To stitch up deals. Uh, but it sounds so nice. Well, no, we have a mandate to make it better, really. For who? Well, for us. That's our <laughs> mandate. Anyway. Um, That's implied. The French, the French got what is now Syria, and it was the largest Arab state to emerge out of the Arab Levant that the, the Ottomans had controlled. Um, modern Syria was established then in 1920 as the Arab Kingdom of Syria under King Faisal, 
a.k.a. Faisal Ibn Hussein bin Ali al-Hashimi. Damn. A member of the Hashemite dynasty. Uh, called that not Ray, as I thought, because they like to smoke hash. Although right. maybe, maybe they did. Uh, I'm not judging. Um, no. Maybe hash is called hash because it came out of Syria. I really don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it just I, hope, just... I hope that's why it's called Hash. I hope so, too. Somebody yeah. somebody out there, let us know. Um, the Hashemite dynasty you will hear a lot about when you read about the Middle East. Um, they were one of the branches of the Hassanid Sharifs of Mecca, who ruled Mecca from like the 10th century until they were kicked out by the House of Saud in the mm. uh, 1920s. Um, so they then went and took over uh, Syria. They're like, eh, you know, <laughs> we used to run Mecca. Now we've got Syria. They get their name nice. from their ancestor, Hashim ibn Abd Manaf, who was the great grandfather of the prophet Muhammad. Oh, wow. Hashim ibn Abd Manaf. Now, they got independence from the French in 1945 when they became a founding member of the United Nations. So post-World War II, uh, you know, as everyone who knows anything about World War II will already stand, coming out of World War II, the French had enough problems. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, well, I actually thought it was interesting that Syria and France negotiated a peace uh, treaty of independence in September of 1936. So Syria was supposed to be independent. Uh, However, uh, the French maintained the military and economic dominance in the country. But of course, France in 1940 gets its ass handed to it by the Germans. Um, So Syria is thinking that it's going to be independent in 41. but along comes the Vichy French, which uh, pretty much controls the area now with the help of the British. Uh, so they Syria proclaims its independence, which is not really supposed to happen until 1944. But even then, uh, France doesn't want to give it up. But um, so it is. It is. It does become independent in April of 46. Uh, the French occupation ends. But unfortunately, because Syria has been handled by so many different countries and. Uh, Everybody has different interests. From 1946 to 1956 in Syria, there are 20 different cabinets. There are four different constitutions. I mean, it is completely uh, unable to govern itself, uh, but it, it does know that it needs allies. So in 1956, Syria signs a pact with the USSR. They give them tanks and planes. Again, this is you know getting into the Cold War. Um, so you, you've got it set up. They, they finally have their independence. Obviously, they're mad at Britain and France. They make a deal with the Soviets, and now that puts them in the crosshairs of the United States and Britain, and you have the Cold War and going, very, going very strongly in the 1960s. So what is Syria going to do after that? They're going to have to deal with this. It, all this confusion, all this chaos, all this turmoil, a lot of it's political, obviously, in March of 1963, there's a coup, one of the many coups, obviously. It's the National Council of the Revolutionary Command. There's a combination of military and civilian leaders, and they have decided, um, along with members of the Ba'ath Party, to take executive and legislative control of the country, and they're going to try to put it on a stable footing that it has not had since it's been independent since '46. Yeah. Nice summary. So the Ba'ath Party, I want to talk about a little bit. People will mm-hmm. maybe familiar with that because of Saddam Hussein and the Ba'ath Party's control over Iraq. But they were also uh, were and, and continue to be in control of Syria. So the Ba'ath Party were founded in Syria in 1947 by three guys. Uh, Michael Aflaq, who was a Christian. Salah Ooh. al-Din Abtar, a Sunni. And Zaki al-Ursuzi, or his followers, anyway, and he was an atheist. A Christian, a Sunni, and an atheist. They walked into a bar in in Damascus in 1947, and they created the Ba'ath Party. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the the idea of the Ba'ath Party, these three guys, of Ba'athism, as it's known, uh, Ba'athism, by the way, is the Arabic word meaning renaissance, Mm. Uh, which is gives us a good opportunity to plug our Renaissance series, the Renaissance Times, which will be starting 
uh, sometime in the next few months. Sometime, yes. Yeah. When we finish Alexander. Yeah. Um, with our free days, with our free time. Yeah, with our free time, yeah. Um, and it was a, it was a, an ideology that kind of mixed together Arab nationalism, pan-Arabism, Arab socialism, and anti-imperialism. Basically, they wanted to unify the entire Arab world into a single state, kick out the uh, 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 imperialists, even though in 1947 they were, you know, Syria was um, technically uh, had its independence. Anyone Mm -hmm. who's, you know, studied the way that these things happened in post-colonialism is the colonial powers tend to maintain a lot of control. Oh, no, you're independent. It's like... You know, when the, the U.S. made Iraq independent after the war, well, you're independent. Of course, the guy who ends up as the, the president or the prime minister of Iraq is an American-sponsored puppet. Um, right. And, and they're a bit like we talked about Iran earlier, you know, the Shah, the, Iran had its independence. It was independent <laughs> under Pahlavi. As long as he did right. what the Americans wanted him to do, he re- <laughs> remained independent. So this independence is, is, is quite often, particularly in post-colonial countries, uh, there's a lot of PR involved in the idea of independence for these countries. The colonial ties and the puppet strings are still being pulled behind the scenes quite often. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so they wanted to kick out the imperialists. Their motto was unity, liberty, socialism. And they wanted to basically, you know, a bit like form a, 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 a not a European Union, like a United States of Arabia is what a they pan wanted to. A pan-Arab Union, yeah. 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 Um, now, they quickly established branches in other Arab countries, but only ended up holding power in Syria and Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, and of That's course, as I mentioned before, Saddam Hussein was secular. So this was a secular movement. It wasn't a theocratic movement, the Ba'ath Party. Of course, it was right. Christian, a Sunni, and an atheist that, that created it. It was like, <laughs> look, this is about you know joining all of the Arab countries up together. It's not about yeah. religion. It's about combining right. the Arab nations. And, and a bit of socialism, you know, taking care of those who maybe can't take care of themselves, the poor, the, the, the young, the old, the sick, the weak, whatever. So, yeah, like you said, bring everybody together, secularism, socialism. We want what's best for our people. Let's bring everybody together, not so much religion, and, and just do, you know, do good by our people. And, uh, you know, oil, we're the countries with all the fucking oil. Yeah, right. uh, this should be easy for us. Yeah, we should be the, the richest country uh, or countries on the planet, we need to you know, keep more of the money and spend it on our people. Right. Anyway, uh, in 1966, there was a coup, a uh, power struggle between the party's old guard that believed in pacifist uh, move towards Arab socialism and some new guys that wanted to take a more militaristic position. Again, <laughs> it's a repeat of the Mensheviks versus the Bolsheviks in Russia in 1917 and the, the split in the Salafi that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever you, you see this throughout history, whenever you have people urging change, political change, um, you have the, you know, you had it had in the US with the Black Panthers uh, right. in, the, in the 60s. Whenever you have uh, uh, social movements for dramatic political change that are needed because the, these countries live under oppression or repression, there's always going to be a small group that want to do it violently. And mm-hmm. uh, I, my theory, and this is part of this book I've been working on, is that they tend to be the sociopaths or the psychopaths. One percent of the population are always sociopaths, according to people, psychiatrists who study this, give or take. And they're going to be the people that want to use violence to achieve their means. Um, and uh, is is that? I'm sorry, just to follow a question to that. Is that because I mean, violence would obviously be the uh, the shortest. Um, path to power, whatever, but is it because of their inability to feel or care about other people's suffering? Yeah. And look, that is a, um, yeah. Yeah, look, I, I don't know that they're, um, they're all necessarily sociopaths. I mean, I obviously don't think Fidel Castro was a sociopath. 
Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I think a lot of them are sociopaths. Sociopaths obviously don't care about human suffering because they, they their empathy centres are broken, typically. Um, but also I think they're just might be pragmatic. I think, you know, as you and I talked about in the Castro shows that we did in the Cold War, you know, he tried uh, to, to take down the Batista government using a court case. He tried to take him to court, yeah. failed. Tried to run for office, yeah. Tried to run for office, failed when they declared, uh, you know, a, a, a lockdown on the government. So, you know, eventually right. he gave up. He tried everything else first and oh, failed. Legal means, yeah. yeah, and then Absolutely. said, okay, well, we have to have an armed revolution. Um, but, uh, you know, I think whenever you have these situations, you're always going to have a small group that are going to want to do take the military method because they just get sick and tired of waiting and they think it is going to be quicker. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you're in a country where the government controls the police and the military, um, you, you know that they're going to use those tools to maintain their control and you need to fight fire with fire. You can do it sort of the peaceful way but it's going to take you a long 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 right. time and there's probably going to be a lot of oppression in the meantime there might be a utilitarian argument to say that okay listen if we if we have a violent revolution yes people are going to get killed and and uh injured but right. there will be less people killed and injured It'll, uh, you know in the course of a sharp. year yeah if we try and do it slowly we're going to be oppressed for a century more and so maybe there's a utilitarian argument for it. I, I, I haven't thought about it in enough detail. But anyway, yeah. um, so there's a coup in Syria and the old guys who wanted a, a peaceful solution lost. Uh, they ended up, the the, the, the founders uh, fled the country and spent the rest of their lives in exile. Mm-hmm. Um, now, by the way, this new government... Uh, in Syria, that well, this new form of of, of the uh, uh, Baathist party um, led to a rift between the Syrian Baathists and the Iraqi Baathists. But at the time, in 1966, Saddam Hussein himself was in jail in Iraq, so didn't have anything to do with him at the time. But in 1967, he escaped from jail and would go on to take over the Iraqi Baathists, but. Wow. That's another story. So then in Syria in November 1970, there's another coup which brings to power General Hafez al-Assad, the father of the current president of Syria, Bashar hmm. al-Assad. Right, and he was the Minister of Defense. Originally, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So he comes to power and he becomes the Syrian president from 1970 until 2000. 30 mm. years he was Not the bad. president. But he came to power in a military coup. Right. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Hmm. Well, I just just think it's um, ironic, and, and I don't know if we're going to go into this or whatever. But um, you know, he has to do certain things to maintain maintain power. But when he comes to power, um, Hafez al Azad comes to power, and the same thing when his son um, Bashir comes to power. They both promise change. They both promise progress. Uh, they both promise things that are going to be better for the people. The uh, more um, uh, religious people, uh, segments of their society don't like it, so he has to kind of talk the talk, uh, trying to make them happy. And, and the more that he has resisted, the more that he has to get firm with the people with, um, certain with using special forces. And he has to, has rougher, tougher policies with the people. And Bashir, his uh, son is going to, to do the exact same thing. He's going to make a lot of promises, a lot of progress because Bashir was supposed to become a doctor. He was, I think in London studying to become a doctor. And, um, to make a long story short, he becomes he be, takes power, and then as the people start to resist him, he gets more and more firm with them, and obviously, you know, arresting people, shooting people in the streets. But he learned literally at his father's knee, watching his father try to get and then hold and consolidate power over a very long time. Yeah, and we're coming up to an hour, so I think we'll cut it there. I just wanted to sort of spike the beginning of the next show by mentioning that. Um, Hafaz el-Assad, the father, mm-hmm. right. was actually an Alawite. 
Um, Alawi Islam is actually uh, a Shia, a branch of uh, Shia. They're followers of the 12 school of Shia Islam. So on paper, you would think they would be closely allied with uh, the Iranian um, Twelvers, the Mm -hmm. Ayatollahs. But uh, his political party, uh, the, the Ba'athist or the Syrian regional branch of the Ba'ath party, uh, is actually secular and you know has been the dominant political power in uh, sorry in Syria since he took power in 1970. So uh, even though in theory he's an Alawite, there is they've they've been secular, so obviously not uh, friendly at a, at a religious level to either Iran right. or Saudi Arabia. Ah. So they, they, they like Iraq. So you got Syria and Iraq um, when when Saddam was running it that were secular Islamic countries surrounded by Iran fundamentalist Shia and Saudi Arabia fundamentalist Sunni. Damn, um, they've been sitting in the middle, uh, trapped between those two, which is why we said right back at the beginning of this that to understand what's going in Syria, you have to understand. Sunni-Shia conflict and uh, the positions of Iran and Saudi Arabia in that. Um, Syria was under emergency law uh, from 1963 up until 2011, uh, basically suspending any sort of constitution that they had. Right. And uh, Bashar, the, the son, came to power uh, when his father died in 2000. And that, I think, should uh, probably be where we wrap it up. Yes. We're getting there. Yeah, we're getting there. Yeah. Um, Now, uh, if by the time you're listening to this, we are, in fact, up on iTunes, (laughs) because we're still Mm -hmm. not in the iTunes directory, They've told me that uh, we're explicit and we didn't tag us. Anyway, long story. If we've managed to negotiate a role in the iTunes, go up and give us a a review, if you wouldn't mind. Our old-timey listeners know how this works. Go up Mm -hmm. to iTunes. Uh, You'll find a link to it on our webpage, uh, thebullshitfilter.com, or on our Facebook page. Go up and leave us a funny, clever brilliant tremendous really tremendous review <laughs> and we will pick we will pick our favorite review uh each mm-hmm. week and send you a thank you gift uh yeah. it'll be the take the form of a coffee mug probably a new coffee mug with the bullshit filter artwork logo on it or some funny quote or something right. from the show that we've talked about so you can be the proud owner of a one of the first ever minted bullshit filter coffee mugs uh, to take to work, put on your desk, and drink gin from yes. pretend that it's water. Um, so oh, do that. Don't yeah. forget to follow me on Twitter at Cameron Riley, Ray on Twitter at World War Two Podcast. Join us on mm-hmm. like LinkedIn, Facebook. Uh, connect with us. We're a community. Go to our forum, thepodcastnetwork.com slash vanilla. Sign up to the forum. Ask questions. Tell us we're wrong. Tell us we're morons. All that kind of stuff. It's all good. We don't take it personally. Not you, Mom. Sorry. <laughs> I, honestly, I I don't mind being insulted by people or being told He I'm likes wrong. it. He actually... No, but we really do want to hear from people because this is a brand new show and we want, to, we want to go in a certain direction. We want some feedback from the people because we want this to be much bigger than ourselves and we want to learn a lot and have fun with it. So please communicate with us. Yeah, this is new for us. It's a new direction we're taking with the shows and... Uh, well, yeah, please give us some feedback. Only if it's good. I mean, if it's negative, we don't. Yeah, want, we just, don't care. We don't want to hear about it. Just, just give us good, <laughs> good feedback or ways to make it even gooder. But if, if, it's, it's, if you don't like if it, if it's negative, I will come to your work with a trench coat on, dressed as Columbo, and flash you. So you got that to look forward to. <laughs> if it's negative, keep it to yourself. No one wants to hear it. No one cares about your opinion. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> it's free. Like, don't complain. We didn't force you right. to listen to this. We didn't hold mm-hmm. a gun to your head. Yeah. Okay. Hour three. It's hour three. Disengage. 
All right. Uh, yeah. And if you're not, if you've discovered this out of the blue and you haven't listened to our other shows, go check them out. I think if you like this, you'll like our other shows. Life of Caesar, Life of Alexander, A Cold War, The Three Illusions even, if you like a bit and of Augustus philosophy Caesar. and science. Yeah. Well, yeah, you find Life of Caesar, you'll find Life of Augustus Caesar. Ray's World gotcha. War Two podcast, my old Napoleon Bonaparte podcast that I did with my Loved it. old um, ex-lover. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry. I was going to say my alcoholic for, old friend, former friend, <laughs> okay. no, old friend for David <laughs> J. David Mark, alcoholic ex-lover. <laughs> All right, uh, thanks for listening, folks. Be back soon with more with Assyria one point four. Just getting into. The, yeah. uh, the, the, the modern Syria f- fucking quagmire. over to destroy the fucking arms. You know what I mean? We keep arming these little countries, then we go and blow the shit out of them. We're like the bullies of the world, you know? We're like Jack Palance in the movie Shane. Throwing the pistol at the sheep herder's feet. Pick it up. I don't want to pick it up, mister. You'll shoot me. Mister, I don't want no trouble, huh? I just came downtown here to get some hard rock candy for my kids, some gingham for my wife. I don't even know what gingham is, but she goes, she goes through about 10 rolls a week of that stuff. I ain't looking for no trouble, mister. You all saw him. He had a gun.